Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. I'm your host, Brother Vinnie Fitzgerald, and today we're going to delve into the Bible to bring you insight from God's Word that will help you to grow and to develop in a spiritual maturity. These lessons are designed to help guide you and strengthen you in your relationship with the Lord. Whether you've never opened a Bible or have read it cover to cover, this podcast will inform and uplift you. Our purpose is not only for you to know and to understand the King's Word, but for you to live it out in your day-to-day life. Philippians 4 and 9 tells us, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Today, our topic is going to be the plague of our heart. Let's begin in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Beginning in the 35th verse, it says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards his house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Verse 38 is very important. It says, What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards his house. The key phrase of this verse is, Know every man the plague of his own heart. The NIV translates this phrase as, Being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts. The NET version translates this verse as, When all your people Israel pray and ask for help, as they acknowledge their pain and spread out their hands toward this temple. These different translations give us a deeper insight into what is actually being said in this verse. The first thing that we need to understand about this verse is that it wasn't addressed to the heathen or to the Gentiles. It's addressed to Israel, the people of God. There were many who were afflicted in their heart and many who were experiencing pain. The same is true today. There are countless Christians all around the world who are afflicted in their heart, feeling pain and struggling. This isn't just referring to outward afflictions and pain. This is also dealing with what goes on on the inside. There are many inward battles that Christians fight day to day that aren't noticeable on the outside. Many believers are going through times of grief, anxiety, doubt, or a broken heart inside, but others around them may not realize the trials and the conflict that they are enduring. The reason for this is that a lot of people are good at hiding their struggles. We all have our struggles and afflictions. No one is exempt. It's part of the human condition. And although those around us may not know what we're going through, we know, and God knows, We know the plague of our own heart. There's an old song that says, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. 
Nobody knows but Jesus. We may fool other people, but we'll never fool God. He knows exactly what we're going through. There are many things in our life that are only between us and God. There's battles that we fought and conflicts that we struggled through, and these are all the plagues of our heart. We find further evidence that we're dealing with the inward from the word used for heart in Hebrew. It means inner man, mind, will, and heart. And since we're dealing with what's within us, there's no way for us to not know the afflictions of our heart. The concordance goes on to say for the word heart that it means the soul, comprehending mind, affections, and will. Because we're dealing with the soul, especially the mind, it's impossible for us to not have knowledge of what is afflicting our mind and our soul. If we claim to not have knowledge of it, we're ignoring it and trying to suppress it, which isn't abnormal. It's human nature to attempt to suppress knowledge or information that we don't want to deal with. This isn't the case with everyone. Many know their afflictions and deal with them privately, while many others go down the dangerous path of ignoring the problem entirely. If we ignore the problem, we're not getting rid of it. We're only masking it for a time, until it reappears worse somewhere down the line. Paul describes this mindset in Romans. Romans 1 and 18 in the ESV says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everyone has an innate knowledge of God and his truth within them, but most people ignore and suppress it because they know what it would mean if they embraced that knowledge. Unbelievers know instinctively that turning to God carries with it practical implications. It means a completely changed life, a reordering of our priorities, and a new understanding of the world. And the vast majority of them aren't willing to make that change. So they ignore the inward longing of their soul that's desiring a relationship with God. The greatest affliction of the soul is when the soul is yet to receive salvation. For the believer, the proper response to an affliction is not to ignore it, but to know it and to understand it so that it could be properly dealt with. We must then ask ourselves the question, what exactly does it mean to know? The concordance says for the word used for know in Greek, it means to perceive, distinguish, know by experience, and consider. It also says that it means to recognize, admit, and acknowledge. The last part of this definition is the process of truly knowing the plague of our heart. The first element is recognizing. Recognize means to identify something from having encountered it before, to know again. When we're being afflicted, we're encountering it daily, we're always experiencing it, and we need to identify it, that it's there and that it's a problem. The second element is admitting. Admit is defined as to concede as true, to acknowledge or assent to, as an allegation which it's impossible to deny. The next step after identifying the affliction is to be honest with ourselves and admit that it's true and that it's there and that we're actively combating it. The last element is acknowledging. Acknowledge is defined as to own or recognize in a particular quality, character, or relationship, to admit the claims or authority of, to give recognition to. Once we identify it within ourselves and admit to ourselves that it's there, we then need to take ownership of it. We need to know that the problem won't magically fix itself and that no one else will fix it for us. We need to realize that it's our affliction and that we need to address it and solve it on our own, between us and God. Until we're honest with ourselves and take these steps, our affliction will continue to afflict us, unabated and unresolved.
The same word used for know is also used for acknowledge two times in the Old Testament, always used in the context of sin, which is important for us to note because many times the devil uses sin to afflict our soul. Jeremiah 3 and 13 tells us, Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. And Jeremiah 14 and 20 tells us, We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. It's necessary that we acknowledge and know our afflictions. Isaiah 59 and 12 says, For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. Nothing can ever be properly handled until it's known and acknowledged. When we know the affliction, we can rightly diagnose it and then rightly fix it. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in the ninth verse, it says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This parable shows a clear distinction between knowing and acknowledging the affliction of the soul and of not acknowledging it. The publican knew it. He was honest with himself. He was upfront about it and didn't try to suppress that knowledge. He recognized it. He admitted it and he acknowledged it. He knew the plague of his heart. This is clear from verse 13, which says, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he had a problem, and he knew it had to get fixed. And we find that this is exactly what happened. When he left, his problem was resolved. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He left with the answer that he came for. The same can't be said, however, for the Pharisee. He came afflicted, and he left afflicted because he made a few mistakes. He was attempting to fool others, and more importantly, to fool God. He failed to recognize and admit and acknowledge his affliction and his sin, and he made the mistake of suppressing that knowledge by ignoring it, trying to sweep it under the rug. He instead exalted himself. He made the mistake of using the age-old deception of comparison. A notable author once wrote, Comparison is the most poisonous element in the human heart because it destroys ingenuity, and it robs peace and joy. Another writer once wrote, Comparison makes you feel either superior or inferior. Neither serves a useful purpose. The Pharisee tried to compare himself to other sinners, and doing so only blinded him to the blatant sin and affliction in his own soul, which prevented him from being freed like the publican was. Comparison stole his freedom, and not only did it do that, but it also gave him a false sense of moral superiority. It made him feel that he was better than the other sinners because their sins were worse than his. 
even though that really wasn't the case at all. All sin is the same in the eyes of God, and all men fall short of the glory of God. He thought that he could fool God, but God wasn't fooled. That's why, unlike the publican, he didn't leave justified. His prayer was merely pretentious, just a formality. Many believers today conduct themselves just like the Pharisee did here, showing the same attributes, the same characteristics that he showed, especially pride. When we find believers exemplifying these same qualities, it's indicative of four things. The first thing that it's indicative of is insecurity. When people feel the need to go above and beyond feigning moral superiority, it demonstrates their inward insecurity. Even though they meet all the requirements of outward morality, deep within, they know that they're still missing something. They're missing a personal relationship with God. Their outward actions have nothing backing them up. And this absence of a real connection with God leaves them insecure. Insecurity of this type always stems from the attempt to find their righteousness in their own works instead of in Christ and what he's done on their behalf. When they see others who have what they're lacking, they feel the need to compare themselves and show their supposed superior morality. The second thing that it's indicative of is adhering to the wrong mindset. There is a mindset that has crept into churches which gives the impression to those who aren't yet saved that the Christian life is free of affliction and free of struggling. Then once they've gotten saved and still battle afflictions and have different struggles, they become disillusioned because they began to think that something is wrong with them if they're struggling or that struggling isn't normal. This leads to a person looking to their morality and to their works as proof of their salvation instead of looking to the finished work of Christ. Many times this mindset isn't even spread intentionally. It's caused by Christians omitting part of the full story from those seeking to be saved, which ends up being misleading and leaves them disillusioned when the Christian life isn't like what they were promised. Churches need to be honest about the true cost of discipleship. Far too many churches teach how to get saved and what it means to get saved, but they never teach what happens the day after you're saved, or the month after, or the year after, when the struggles and the battles and the spiritual warfare of the Christian life begin. This leaves people unprepared. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr from World War II, once said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cost is high, and believers need to know that struggling is not only normal, but a guaranteed part of our faith walk. There's a battle to be fought. Philippians 2 and 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When believers don't know the necessity of struggling, they try to suppress it and they hide it from themselves, hiding behind the cloak of comparison and legalism, just like the Pharisee did. The third thing that this is indicative of is the false idea that Christians, as they grow in faith, can live perfect, sinless lives, and that sin indicates that a person is out of the will of God. Although this theory may sound nice, it couldn't be further from the truth. This ideology is detached from reality and has no basis in scripture or in Christian experience. The only place that will ever be perfect is in heaven. But as long as we live in this fallen world, we'll still struggle with sin. 1 John 1 and 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. People only deceive themselves when they claim the moral high ground of supposed perfection. They suppress the knowledge of the plague of their own heart, 
lying to themselves so many times that they actually start to believe that they've reached a state of perfection, which causes people to exemplify the same pride rooted in morality as the Pharisee did. Pharisees were especially susceptible to this type of thinking. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like widened sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. This is one of the most dangerous ideologies in the church today. The last thing that this is indicative of is attempting to make unnecessary restitution for the past. Many believers, although outwardly saying that they believe that they are forgiven, don't act like they believe it. They haven't truly trusted Christ for their forgiveness, and they are afflicted with a feeling of guilt. The devil then seizes that opportunity to use that guilt to his advantage and constantly drags up that person's past reminding them of things that they've done wrong, telling them that they're not good enough and haven't done enough. When people hear these lies of the enemy, it causes them to overcompensate by falling into the trap of legalism, which makes a person look to their works for their assurance instead of finding their righteousness in Christ. This causes a person to resort to comparison to try to prove to God that they made restitution for their past mistakes. Philippians 3 and 13 tells us, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth under those things which are before. We need to know that God has purposely forgotten the sins of our past, so that we don't get caught up on what's behind us, and so that we're free to move forward in faith. Hebrews 8 and 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Micah 7 and 19 tells us, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The only one who keeps going over our past is us, and the devil will use this against us if we let him. When the devil tries to bring up our past, we need to bring up his future, because we have the victory, and we can't allow him to steal what rightfully belongs to us. If struggling and affliction are guaranteed parts of our walk of faith, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we have to be continually afflicted, or is there a way to get rid of our afflictions? The good news is that God has provided a way for us to be freed. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning in the 28th verse, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the Lord's prescription for us to get rid of our afflictions. But how do we take His yoke and burden upon us and find rest? There are two steps to this. The first is bringing the burden to the Lord. No matter what is burdening and afflicting us, we can always bring it to Him. He wants to take it from us. We find that the publican did this. Luke 18 and 10 said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. He went to the temple, which represents the presence of God. He knew that he had a burden, and he knew that he had to bring it to God. And we also find this in 1 Kings. It said in 1 Kings 8 and 38, What prayer or supplication be made by any man or by all thy people Israel? This is a call for them to bring their burdens, both individual and national, to the Lord. The second step, which is the most important, 
we find again with both the publican and with first kings. The second half of first kings 838 says, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands towards his house. Spreading forth their hands, lifting them up to God represents surrender, which is the second step. Once we take our burden to the Lord, we need to leave it there. We do this when we acknowledge that we can't carry the burden on our own. We need God's help. We need to forfeit control of it and give the control to God because only He is able to take our burden and remove our affliction. This is exactly what the publican did. He said, God be merciful to me a sinner. This was his surrender. He was admitting that he couldn't handle his burden on his own. Then we find in Luke chapter 18 and verse 14 that God took his burden and he was delivered and set free. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And we find the same in 1 Kings 8 and 39, which tells us, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. God knows our hearts. He knows our burdens and our afflictions. We can't fool him. And we each know the plague of our own heart. We need to recognize, admit, and acknowledge it within ourselves, and then take it to the Lord and leave it there. It is never God's will for us to have to live in affliction. Afflictions will come from time to time, but Jesus will lift the burden. We will never find the freedom that we're looking for until we surrender to Christ. Let's make the choice today to surrender all to Him and to let Him remove the plague of our heart. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that even though afflictions may come about from time to time throughout our lives, that we don't have to live under affliction, that we don't have to live under bondage, that you have made a way for us to be freed and for us to live in victory. Lord, we know the plague of our own heart. We recognize it. We admit it. We acknowledge it. And Lord, today we bring that affliction that's afflicting us at this very moment to you. We surrender it to you. And Lord, we lift our hands in worship. And we take upon us your yoke and your burden. For we know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, we thank you that you have removed our affliction today. And that that affliction will not return in our life ever again. Lord, we rebuke the attacks and the lies of the enemy. They have no power over us as your people. And today, Lord, we claim and we receive that freedom that only you can give us. And Lord, for all those around us who were afflicted also, Lord, we ask that you open up their eyes that they may see their affliction so that they can bring it to you and receive freedom also. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of freedom and that you are a God of liberty and that that is your will for your people. And Lord, we claim that freedom right now. And Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing and all that you're going to do for your people. We know that you have great and amazing things set apart for us. We give you all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want the Lord to remove the plague of your heart and have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. If you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at Kingsword Bible Study 
at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And if you follow and subscribe so that more people can hear the King's Word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.